Hey everyone, you're listening to the Simple Electronics Podcast. I'm your host, Dan, from the Simple Electronics YouTube channel. And with me today, I've got a very special guest who I actually forgot to ask how I address. I think you go by Maddie, is that right? Maddie works. Maddie, oh, Madison, Digimer, whatever. It's all good. Yeah, I was going to say Digital Mermaid, but I wasn't sure if that was quite your like like your trademark or the way you wanted to be addressed. So anyways, M Maddie, the Digital Mermaid, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you for asking. So... Uh, I don't think that, um, like, I don't know you very well because I've only been watching your channel about six months now or so. Um, so a little bit for me, but mostly for the audience. Can you just uh, let us know who you are and uh, what you do? So for the most relevant to your listeners probably is I am building a electric power system for a sailboat I'm converting to be fully electric propulsion which I'm actually quite hyped about because longtime listeners of the show will know that uh, one of my endgame goals uh, on this YouTube channel, maybe not endgame, but uh, one of my big goals is to build a uh, solar-powered raft and to uh, go down the Rideau, you know, river system all the way to the Great Lakes. So you and I are energetically aligned on that. <laughs> I like the use of energetic there. Very, uh, very Shakespearean. <laughs> <laughs> and so, okay, um, I think you sold yourself a little short, though. Um, so I found your channel uh, when I was, you know, just in the midst of ordering uh, lithium iron phosphate, 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 yeah, phosphate, thank you, LifePo4 batteries. And uh, you've done quite a lot of sort of research and work around them. Can, can you let me know, like, where, where did you get started with lithium batteries? So, hmm. to answer the question, I need to answer something slightly tangential, if that's okay. It's a, it's a podcast. This is their only opportunity to make long-form long content, so by <laughs> all means, go nuts. So, I want to... I've always had this dream of being able to travel. I didn't know when I was growing up what form that would take, but I've always had this dream of just traveling for like five years. And... In 2019, I, without any real forethought, was visiting a friend of mine who lived on a sailboat and we went for a sail. And I got bit by the sail bug. And I came home and I'm like, yep, I'm going to buy a sailboat and I'm going to have to travel. So I started learning about sailing and I had a lot of people telling me, oh, well, you're going to have to learn to be a diesel mechanic. And I was like, no, thank you. I know a bit more about electrics through my work with computers. That seems like something I'd be more interested in learning. So. I decided that I wanted to do a full electric sailboat, but because of the kind of places I want to go, the Arctic, the Antarctic, um, basically the most remote places I could find, I realized I was going to have to be able to fix everything myself. And so I decided that I wanted to build the battery system and the power system as much from scratch as I can. Obviously, I don't have a mine in the back to make my own battery cells, so there's a point where you're buying pre-made stuff. But as much as I thought was feasible, I wanted to assemble everything myself, partly because Legos for grown-ups, but more because if something breaks, I need, I need to have some level of confidence that if it can be fixed, I can fix it. Okay, so that that's actually really cool. And then how did you go about uh, specking the sort of batteries you're going to be needing. And um, as a Canadian, which I hope is okay for me to out you as a Canadian. <laughs> no worries. I'm out as a Canadian. It's all good. Um, as a Canadian, uh, where and how did you get your batteries from? 
So my first batch, I am, oh gosh, this would be over two years ago now. I was watching Andy's Off-Grid Garage and he had successfully ordered a bunch of cells from, uh, Shoot, I'm completely forgetting their name. Something Shenzhen. Shenzhen Basen. And I was like, well, I don't want to buy them from local suppliers because the price was too high. The price here was relatively reasonable. And he seemed happy that he got what he paid for. So I thought, okay, I'll order my first bank from them. So I ordered 16 cells, enough to build my first 48 battery. And as I that went along and I got that working, I'm like, all right, I'm ready to buy the big batch now. And perhaps something we'll talk more about later. Originally, I was thinking I was going to do a hybrid battery, um, boat where I'd have an electric generator that was sufficient to run the motor at half power constantly, and then a bank of batteries around it. And I kind of had this realization, why am I doing this? And I just threw the generator out metaphorically and just bought a whole lot of batteries. And by that point, I wasn't too terribly happy with Shenzhen, and he had purchased from um, QSO, Kishu. Um, from uh, from Alibaba. So I messaged them and their responsiveness, uh, they were fantastic, much more responsive than um, Shenzhen Basen. I really was happy with them. They seemed very kind. They answered all of my questions. I never felt rushed. So I bought a whole bunch of batteries from them. And about three months later, they showed up in a whole lot of boxes. Feel free to not answer this question, but um, how much did that cost you, your, your big purchase? Um... I have no problem answering that. Um, I'm horrible with tracking things. So if I ever don't say anything about price, it's probably just because I was too ADHD to actually track my prices. But, um, and I don't want to sound like I'm promoting my channel, but I did a video where I broke down all of the costs. And I say that because I don't know if I'm remembering the numbers accurately. But I believe that order of that, I bought 100 cells, a 96 for six 48 volt batteries plus four spares for swapping in later. I believe it was about $18,000, which I know sounds like a ridiculously large amount of money. And it is. That's a very decent family car. But compared to what it would have cost me if I had bought it from companies that already you know were selling pre-made batteries like Battleborn or Vectron or something it was cheap for the amount of batteries I got it, it's definitely I, I just need to put some perspective uh, f for people I believe about 20,000 US dollars is the price of a Tesla Model 3 long-range battery and so I'm I think you're you're talking about in Can Canadian dollars 18 yeah. grand Canadian yeah so that's like what 14 14 grand american something like that something like that yeah and so that's actually very inexpensive and how many like watt hours total did you ever do the calculation i did um the first battery i got it tested at 14.3 kilowatt hours which is the one that is currently on my boat broken up into two 12 volt batteries and then the bank of six that are still set up as 48 volt i i tested I'm, so i tested it over six days and I had the screens, blah, blah, blah. If you, the, de the details can be discussed, but it was about 86 kilowatt hours. So between the 48 volt propulsion bank and the 12 volt house bank, I've got just a hair over 100 kilowatt hours that will be going on the boat. By comparison, I believe the Model Y long range that I have has a 82 kilowatt hour bank. Tesla's a little cagey about that, but the point is, is my my old 43-year-old sailboat is going to have more power than most modern EVs, which just tickles me pink. 
Yeah, and and a hundred. You know, you're you're talking about nearly a hundred between the two kilowatt hours. That's a lot more than people think. Because if you're not running a hair dryer all day every day, uh, that's you know, it's going to take you a while to run through a hundred kilowatt hours. Ridiculously long. I did a when I tested my first battery. Um, which was 14.3 kil- so 14 kilowatt hours to round it out. It took me a couple hours shy of a full week running all of my kitchen appliances off of it. I didn't want to do just like a straight turn on the load and wait for it to be empty. I wanted to see what it was going to be like using real world loads. People like Andy and Will Prouse and Lithium Solar, they do fantastic empirical testing. I kind of wanted to do a little bit more real world. So I set up my electric oven, I set up my induction hob and my kettle and whatnot, and just wanted to see how long it would take. It was almost a full week running my entire kitchen off of it. Oh, not my fridge, but everything else. And now that's 14. I have 100 on the boat. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. Did you ever... Uh, I know a little bit because I've been watching, but your viewers might not know. So you have a, uh, sorry, my viewers might not know, um, but you have a a large diesel engine. If it's a four cylinder, yeah. Three cylinder. And you want to replace, sorry, is it, is it an eight cylinder? It's a three cylinder. It's a Denmark 3QM30. Gotcha, gotcha. 3GM30, sorry, 3GM30. And you want to replace it with an electric motor. Did Mm -hmm. you get any, um, are you any further ahead in sourcing an electric motor for that? Oh, so the electric motor has been an adventure. Um, In fact, I spent most of today reading up on controllers for electric motors. Originally, the plan had been I was going to use the Torquedo Cruise Pod 12, which is an outboard motor that lives below the hull of the boat. It's immersed in water all the time. It's like the bottom end of a sail drive for anybody who's listening who's familiar with boats. But the motor itself has no gearing. The rotor on the motor goes directly to the propeller. Like there's no gearing whatsoever. And it means I would completely clear out the engine bay for batteries. But Torquedo kind of led me along for about a year saying that they would regen charge my batteries, uh, which for your listeners slash viewers, regen on a boat is when you're under sail and the, the, the wind is pulling you along, it spins the propeller and you use it as a hydro generator to generate electricity to charge your batteries, which is my primary plan to charge my batteries. They were like, oh, we should be able to charge third party batteries. They should, you know, we should be able to, but they never gave me a conclusive answer. I finally pinned them down last year at the Annapolis Sailboat Show and they're like, yeah, no, we can't do that. So then I started scrambling, trying to find another pod company or another company that would do pod motors that would charge my batteries. I thought I found one with a Polish company called eTech, and then they just sort of stopped answering my questions. I I, I know I can be annoying. I ask a lot of technical questions and they just never answered me. So from there, I started thinking, well, maybe I should go inboard to buy myself some time for the pod motor world to evolve. And that's kind of where I am now. And I'm currently leaning towards a pair of golden motor, 10 kilowatt liquid cooled motors in parallel. Um, So two different belts running to the same prop shaft. And I'm not not settled on any of this, but I'm leaning pretty strongly towards the Kelly controller for two separate Kelly controllers, one for each motor as the, and that would be the, the drivetrain. I suspect most of the time, five kilowatts to eight kilowatts would probably be more than enough to push my boat for most of what I'm doing. But it does give me the ability to push up to 20 kilowatts, which is far more pushing power than even my diesel gives me, which 
should be pretty awesome. But more importantly to me, it gives me full redundancy. I can lose a motor. I can lose, um, I can lose, sorry, I just got a notice saying that my connection was lost. I hope they're, you're still hearing me. Yeah, we're still here. Sorry, that's going to make editing really fun. Um, so it, it, when I was going up the Hudson River on the trip home, I did it. I know we haven't talked about this yet. I did a 1400 kilometer trip home. I plugged my, my, my fuel pump and it left me stranded and I had to get a tow. And then later on the trip, I lost an impeller and overheated the engine. And again, I was stranded. It made me realize how important I think having full independent drive systems are. And so that's kind of where I am with motors right now. But it's not a final decision. So it's subject to change still. That's actually really interesting stuff. Is there any thoughts? Um, and obviously, I'm just bringing this on you. I don't know if it's crossed your mind. But was there any thoughts of maybe getting like a, a used EV motor, like from either a Tesla or I know the uh, Chevy Bolts now are getting pretty popular? Any any thoughts of that? Um, the thought is, I'm sorry, I had the thought, yes, early on and very quickly dismissed it. So one of the little bit of background before I got into this, I have a background in IT. So I knew basically the difference between voltage and amperage and, and wattage and whatnot. All of the differences are two sides of the same coin. Anyways, you know what I mean? I knew very, very, very basics, but I knew some basics. Um, one of the first questions I asked myself when I decided I was going to do this was, well, what kind of battery chemistry do I want to use? And very quickly, I ruled out anything cobalt based because of the thermal runaway being flammable. One of the things that led me very quickly towards lithium iron phosphate was the fact that you could quite literally drive a stake through it and it won't catch fire. Um, so knowing then that I was going to go with lithium iron phosphate, that ruled out most EVs, not all. Some EVs use um, LFP, but most are some flavor of cobalt, NMC of some sort or another. Um, then as I started looking into the marine electrical code, I realized that ABYC, the American Boating and Yacht Council, I think is what it stands for. They're kind of like the unofficial council for defining what is allowed on sailboats. And I say that because most insurance companies would be like, are you ABYC compliant? If yes, here's your insurance. If no, go away. Having insurance is kind of required because you can't get into most marinas without insurance. Um, certainly trying to get lifted out on like a travel lift that lifts your boat out. They want to know that you've got liability insurance. So being able to be insured has been a huge hassle and a huge driver in which technology I chose. So knowing now that I had to follow ABYC, their standards for what they call low voltage is anything less than 60 volts. Most EVs tend to run in the hundreds of volts. So yep. from a compliance perspective, I never wanted to go above 60 volts to stay within ABYC low voltage definition or regime, whatever you want to, how you ever want to describe it. And um, so pretty quickly using EVs, you know, the second use wrecked EVs was off the table. The last thing I would say, and though I didn't really, this wasn't a factor of the decision because by the time I learned about this, I had already decided I wasn't going to use EVs. But another factor is that their motors are designed very much for high RPM. And with a boat, with a sailboat at least, um, I want to run like a thousand to fifteen hundred RPM, probably sitting around twelve hundred RPM, prop RPM, at the most. So the higher the RPM of the motor, the more reduction gearing I would have to use. And I don't. I mean, the fact that I'm going inboard means I have to use belts, which means I have, it's a more lossy system 
which is one of the reasons I wanted to use a pod in the first place. But knowing now that I'm probably going to have to go inboard, trying to get something that has an RPM that's closer to what the prop will be is something that's appealing to me. So for those three reasons, yes, I considered EV, but ruled it out. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I did not know about the voltage limit thing. That That is actually quite important because, yeah, for those listening at home, um, a modern EV will usually go up uh, up into 600 volts or so. And the, the point of that, uh, as Maddie knows for sure, but maybe you don't on listening, is that the the higher the voltage, the less current needed through a wire for the same amount of power. And that means that there's fewer losses through the wires and you can run smaller wires. That's why you get more efficiency, basically. And that's why uh, the power lines that aren't going directly to your house are you know, in the kilovolt range. And that's why manufacturers use more and more voltage these days. So in case you didn't know, now you know. That is absolutely correct. But allow me to also add one of the big limiters then is MOSFETs. As you go to the higher, MOSFETs really don't like amperage. Amperage is heat. Well, it's not amperage is heat, resistance is heat. But the higher the amperage, the harder it is to find MOSFETs that can safely handle them. One of the things I've been struggling a lot with, one of the other reasons I'm looking at a, a pair of tandem 10 kilowatt motors is that that's about the largest single motor I can find that and controller I can find that can drive about 200 amps continuous. That's a lot of amperage to be running through those fats. So you just, I mean, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how this translates to wheel DVs, but in the sailing community, generally speaking, the rule of thumb is that one kilowatt of electric propulsion is the equivalent pushing power, not the mathematical equivalent, the equivalent pushing power of two to three horsepower of diesel. And so at 10 kilowatt, being about the limit of a single motor at 48 volts nominal, that's the equivalent of 20 to 30 horsepower. That's not very much. Most EVs are running hundreds of horsepower. To get that much horsepower with any sensible measure of MOSFETs, you have to drive the voltage up. Yeah, very true. That makes a lot of sense. See, I'm from the automotive world, so things things make sense to me uh, from certain perspectives. And so for me, I thought for sure the EV motor would be, you know, the go-to because they're becoming more and more ubiquitous. But um, I can see very much that your that your your thoughts uh, on deciding on going with a ten, two 10 kilowatt units are makes a lot of sense. So I'm glad you said something because or else I would have been going down the wrong road when I was going to build my solar raft down in the future. <laughs> the only reason I know this is because other people have been really amazing about taking their time to share what they've learned. Um, every everything I say, it's because someone took the time to write it down or told me about it directly. And that's kind of the amazing thing about this kind of a community is that we all learn from each other. Is there anyone in specific you want to uh, give a shout out to now that you have a little bit of a different platform to do it on? Ah, flip. <laughs> putting you on the spot? No, no, no. It's not putting me on the spot. It's just that the list is so long. I don't know who to say I would want to give a shout out to at the fear of not giving shout outs to people who are equally deserving because my brain is very, oh, look, squirrel. Um, That's I, why I hide my subscription count on uh, on YouTube. I, I don't share who I'm subscribed to because sometimes 
I'll have watched a hundred videos of a channel and forget to subscribe. And so I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings if they're not on my subscriber list. I, I very much suffer from the same problem is that I have learned so much stuff from so many great people. I don't want to ever mention one person and forget to mention someone else simply be not because they weren't impactful, but because my just brain is not working at that moment to remember them. And I dig same thing. I don't ever want to hurt anyone's feelings. I would say that from the perspective of you, you found me through my YouTube channel. So using the YouTube channel as an example or as, a, a, as the, the, the frame of reference for answering your question. Back in the very earliest days when I was first trying to build my first ever battery, I didn't understand how different fuses worked. I didn't understand what a T-class fuse was and what clamping amperage was. I didn't know about any of this stuff. And I was watching some of um, Andy at Off Grid Garage's videos. And he was talking about building one of his first batteries and he made this almost offhanded comment about how he was using an ANL fuse. And he's like, I know I should really be using a T-class fuse. This fuse wouldn't be able to break a dead short. And I was like, huh? And that sent me down the Wikipedia rabbit hole of learning about different fuses. And I learned about the silica inside of the T-class fuse being able to quench the arc of a short. Long story short, if you're using lithium iron phosphate, they have incredibly low internal resistance, which means their ability to discharge amperage is staggering. I'm measured in the kiloamps. If you have a standard ANL fuse where it's got like a bridge wire that melts under high amperage, what will end up happening is it, it can discharge such high amperage that it'll just arc across the air gap and not break the circuit. T-class fuses with their silica are designed that the silica quenches that arc and breaks it. Well, that little bit of information, because I can be a bit of a dumbass when I'm building things, is it ended up saving my butt. I was trying to figure out how I was going to route the main pack positive cable, and I had connected the wire to the disconnect switch, and then I was just swinging it around willy-nilly trying to look at this wire that had an inline T-class fuse because Andy talked about this, and dead short of the battery. And there's one frame I got on the GoPro where you could actually see this like black plastic marine grade switch was glowing blue um, from the arcing that was happening. In the instant that it took to blow the fuse, I have a cavity that I, I burned out of the top of the terminal and the back of the battery. Um, and I wrote him and I'm like, listen, I, I, I know you don't know me, but I just wanted to say that you saved my ass. And he did a freaking hilarious video. He's like... When a lady sends me an email talking about her ass, I'm not entirely sure whether I should read it or not. Wow. <laughs> uh, he, he's, he's glorious. Anyways, he did this like long talk and he was talking, he, he used to talk about T-class fuses. And from him, I think when he subscribed to my channel, he was the 40th subscriber, like four zero. And after that video went up, I suddenly had like over a thousand subscribers. And I'm like, holy shit. I I thought if I ever hit 100 subscribers, I'd be doing well. And suddenly I had 1,000. So I want to mention him because I don't, you wouldn't have found me if he hadn't taken the time, A, to share his knowledge, um, but B, to kind of give me a shout out. So I'm going to say him in particular because he was so integral to help me getting my channel off the ground. Separately from that, I've had a few other people mention my channel that has helped a lot, um, Lady K Sailing, Acorn to Arabella, and a few others. And now I, I sit here with the gobsmacked almost 9,000 subscribers going, 
how did I get here? What was that song from the 90s? You know, you might ask yourself, how did you end up with such a... Anyways, yeah, I'm yammering. No, that's fine. It's a it's a podcast. It's meant for yammering. No worries. But, okay, so um, T-Class fuses then, um, that must be similar to the properties of uh, like a multimeter fuse because a multimeter fuse is a uh, ceramic cased and silicone... Uh, silica um, surrounded. I guess they have the same principle or is a multimeter fuse a T-class T fuse? Um, I don't know what actually defines a T-class fuse. So it could be that the answer to your question is yes and no, and I just don't know the answer to that. I do know that the silica being basically a sand after i blew my my fuse i decided because i'm a curious little monkey to cut it open and see what it was made up of inside and it had four very very fine flat plates and i mean by the time i opened it up and the sand fell out i couldn't tell you what orientation they were inside of the sand before i tore it apart but i suspect when it blew those fins were pushed away and sand filled it in and it created a very sand filled path between the two sides of the fuse and the arc if it was to be sustained had to arc through that and the sand just prevented it i'm assuming that it's probably similar inside of a multi-class or multi-class sorry for your podcasters i'm actually kind of a shy person and i specifically asked to do this 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 podcast in the afternoon so i could quell my nerves with a little bit of um adult beverage so if i seem like i'm a little bit more scatterbrained that's why i'm dealing with being nervous um, I don't know if inside of the multimeter fuse, it's multi-conductor like the T-class fuse was, but I suspect it probably is. I'm guessing it's probably not a straight wire so that when it blows, the chances that there is metal fragments that could allow the arc to jump across is not there. That's the best I can answer. I don't really know the answer directly. Yeah, that's fine. Hey, that, we're, I mean, let's just say none of us are... Uh, sort of university level experts on the subject. We're all just doing what we can. It's just you happen to have done a lot more. So that's why I was asking. That's all. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that comment. I hope I live up to that. Just a quick interruption to talk about this episode's sponsor, PCBWay. PCBWay has been a long-term sponsor of the channel, and I think they're a good match for my channel because they provide quality PCBs for a reasonable price. You can get boards manufactured up to 100 mils by 100 mils for just $5, including shipping to Canada, 15 US dollars, including shipping to USA, 12 US dollars, which is incredibly cheap for professionally manufactured PCBs. I can personally attest to the quality of these PCBs, and so if you want a circuit immortalized forever, check out PCBWay.com with the link in the description. Now back to the conversation. Oh, for sure. You, don't worry, you're doing fine. Um, okay, so here's my situation. So yeah. I bought uh, 16 105 amp hour EVE cells mm -hmm. from an AliExpress seller. Um, I was, um, I had, uh, uh, roll two videos. So Roland on the podcast and he told me to go with, uh, you know, supplier X. I don't remember who his supplier was and they gave me a quote and it was quite a bit of money. And so I decided to go against expert advice and, uh, got a much cheaper, uh, set of cells. Now with the cells that came in, uh, they have studs that are laser welded to them, um, which is done horribly. Seemed like a seven-year-old without a welding <laughs> shield. 
did it. Um, the labels are peeling. Uh, two of two of the QR codes don't go into any system. Um, and I feel, and some of them are, you know, a little bit, little bit bulgy, not like bulge, bulge, but a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, some of them have little dents here and there. That being said, uh, I have not, I, I've just put it together at the moment. So it's on a Haltech BMS. And I have not done the first charge yet. Uh, any advice for somebody like me who uh, who bought you know inexpensive cells and are building their first pack? Anything that you've learned that you can maybe share with us? All right, that I mean, yes, is the short answer. Let me see what I can give that's the most useful for my experience. If you're buying cells that are coming from the same supplier, you can trust that they're new. Well, okay, Andy has a great video on this. I say that because I want to give credit where this information is coming from. There's no such thing as a grade A cell. Every cell that's available to mere mortals to purchase in the lithium iron phosphate world are rejects. They're rejects from China, generally from China's very strict regulations around what's allowed into EVs over in China. So every cell that's brand new that gets rejected goes into secondary sales market when that's how we get them. So when you hear people say that you bought a grade A cell, that just means you bet the you bought the best reject. I say that because every battery we have access to is to some degree flawed. How much? Generally not anything we're going to ever care about, but still, it's not perfect. Now, when I bought my cells, the the 100 cells that I bought, I paid extra to have them all resistance and capacity matched. So what they did is they went through and they did a full charge discharge test and they looked to find the ones that had the closest match of internal resistance, which varies based on state of charge, which is an important thing to understand because if you measure the internal resistance at any given state of charge, it's going to change. But the capacities all were for sure over 280 amp hours with the ones I bought, 105 in your example. So for me, I spent a lot of time really trying to carefully top balance them. And I think in hindsight, it was a waste of time. I'm still glad that I did it because I'm a nerd and it was fun, but I don't think it gave me any benefit. Now, in your case, where you get a whole bunch of questionable cells that are probably from disparate suppliers and and built at different times, I would say that top balancing them is actually probably well worth the time. So what does top balancing mean? It's where you take all of the cells and you have a constant voltage uh, bench charger and you charge it up to a set voltage, generally 3.65 volts. And you charge it until its accepted amperage drops below some set value. Most people use 10%. So if it's 105 amper, you would stop the disc or you'd stop charging when it hit 10.5 amps. I went down to like two amps on my 280, which is like 1%. Again, probably not worth it, but I was curious. In your situation with all of these disparate cells of questionable quality, I would probably take it to like 2%. I'd probably say in your case, charge at 3.6 to 65 volts until the current going in drops below two amps and then stop. That gets them all charged as top as they possibly can. And then discharge them as far down as you can. Charge them back up. And then at that point, assemble it into a pack. And you've probably got the most usable amp hours, the most usable kilowatt you can get out of that pack. That's true whether you have new, like good second hand or second use or 
questionably used second use, you're going to get the most out of it that way. But the more matched the cells are when you buy them, the, le the, the, the return becomes diminishing. Beyond that, I, when I first got my batteries, I saw some of them were bulged and I was like, what? I paid, you know, I, I wanted these, like, I, I thought I was getting really high-end cells and I was kind of disappointed by the fact that they were bulged. I've come to realize that doesn't mean much of anything. I mean, if they're grossly bulged, yeah, you probably have a problem. But Will Prouse did one, he built a battery bank out of really messed up cells and they pull most of capacity. So you can get good capacity. You may not get the 105 amp hours you, you paid for, but you probably paid less than if you had bought so-called grade A 105 amp hours. So if you look at the dollar per usable kilowatt, you probably did quite well. I'm, I wouldn't worry too much about a little bit of swelling, a few dings here and there. Measure the capacity, and if you get close to what you paid for, especially if what you paid for was a good price, be happy and move on with your project. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of the plan. I have I have to keep telling myself that I did I did get them at a at a discount. They were about uh, with shipping. I think it was nine hundred and forty or something for the sixteen hundred and five uh, amp hour cells. Canadian, Canadian, yeah. So it's it, no, sorry, nine twenty five. There we go. Nine twenty five ninety eight is what I paid in Canadian dollars. So it's not too bad. Um, and five point three kilowatt hours. In theory. I don't. I don't think they're going to pull full capacity because I think they were manufactured in 2018, so they're they're already kind of old cells. Which doesn't hurt lithium as much as it does cobalt-based chemistries. Oh, sorry, it doesn't hurt LFP as much as it hurts cobalt-based chemistries. For sure. And also, I have to always recenter myself on the reason why I bought cells is because I want to experiment with them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going the uh, lazy top balancing way. I think Andy did a video on this and um, he just put an active balancer and turned it on at the, you know, when, when the cells were almost full mm -hmm. and then left it, you know, for a week or so. Because I don't have too much time these days, uh, especially now because uh, I'm, I'm replacing the transmission in my car in my driveway. So a bit of a pain in the butt, but. So I think that's what I'm going to do, and and then you know we'll see what uh, what they give. But if I I figure if I get 80 amp hours out of it already, that it's way lighter than the um, lead acid uh, 100 amp hour. Oh my god, yes! Battery that I've been using for you know to go fishing with, I think I'm going to be thrilled. You know, either way. That's four kilowatt hours. Oh yeah, that's fine. Yeah, for sure, hundred percent. This is something that. I think it's important to mention here is that, okay, this is going to sound weird for a second, but there's a common saying in the sailing community that a shitty day on the water is better than a good day in the office. Twisting that, a shitty LFP is going to blow the pants off of a really good AGM or lead acid battery. You have to be pretty bloody bad luck to have an LFP battery that doesn't smoke any traditional chemistry when it comes to batteries that you would find in boats, cars, and et cetera. Oh, hundred percent, especially in, on the weight front, because I only have a small 14 foot aluminum boat. So I'm loading and unloading every time. And I'm telling you the 60 or so pounds that, that I think maybe 40 pounds anyways, that, 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 you know, um, lead acid battery weighs with a completely smooth case. There's no handles or nothing. Uh, I mean, Already, just having four, um, you know, LifePo cells together in a twelve, you know, twelve volt configuration, 
and I've designed myself um, sort of 3D printed brackets and stuff. So I actually have, you know, handholds on the on the damn thing already. <laughs> I'm thrilled. So there we go. I um, I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead of what you wanted to talk about, but on my boat for the trip home, which we haven't really talked about yet, but I removed four 96 amp hour, I think they were 12 volt gel batteries at 75 pounds a piece. I replaced them with 50, well, 200 pounds total. Um, was it 1120 amp hour usable? And that's a big difference. Lithium iron phosphate, you can use 100% of it, where gel, lead acid, um, AGM batteries, you only get 50% usable. Um, with, so I had I have 1120 amp hour usable 12 volt batteries for 200 pounds that replaced what uh, 96 said. Uh, less than 200 usable amp hours of gel at 75, 300 pounds. So I lost a hundred pounds and like five, six times the usable energy. Like it's just lithium iron phosphate is the future. I am convinced of this, even compared to NMC, cobalt-based lithium chemistries. I think lithium iron phosphate is the future. It's got so many advantages, weight, safety, et cetera, et cetera. I think the only big downside is they're not that great in the cold, right? You shouldn't be charging them in the cold. So you can discharge them up to minus 20 degrees Celsius, but the usable capacity falls off a cliff as it gets below freezing. You cannot charge them below freezing. If your cell is below freezing and you try to charge it, you will destroy it. So yes, it is more temperature sensitive, but that's also relatively easily solved. You can find pre-built batteries that have um, silicone heating pads built into them. So if you want to be able to use the battery in cold temperatures, you can run the heating pads to keep the cells above freezing so you can charge them even though the ambient temperature might be below freezing now there is a point where you don't want to run the heaters all the time because you'll drain the batteries obviously and if it's below minus 20 degrees celsius i have no idea what that is in freedom units but it's freaking cold um if you haven't started charging them at that point you don't want to discharge you can't discharge from the battery to run the heating pad so you kind of have this like a chicken and egg problem but the point is, is that if you can get the batteries above minus 20 C, you can start to warm them up and then you're good. And this is kind of a problem with cobalt-based chemistries as well. Look at most EVs. They have heat pumps. I know with my car, when I drive it in the winter, I am the, you know, preparing your battery for optimal charging kicks in like 45 minutes before I make it to the next supercharger because it needs to heat up the coolant and then run that heated coolant around all of the cells to bring them up to temperature. So, I, yes, it's a concern. I have to do more homework to say how much of a concern it is for other chemistries, but I think it is a problem with all chemistries. But lead acid is more tolerable to wired, wilder temperature variants. Now, if that's really a concern for you, I suppose you could keep a single lead acid there just to run some heating pads to bring your lithium up to temperature so you can start charging them. Do something like a chemical hybrid type model. Yeah, I think for uh, people, like if you were to keep your gas engine, I would probably, or sorry, diesel engine, I would probably have suggested that you keep a lead acid battery on board because um, you were talking a little bit about the voltage spikes that mm. are possible from uh, cutting off the field winding of the alternator all of a sudden if your um, BMSs turn off, right? Yes, that's a whole issue. 
Yeah, and lithium, uh, I mean, uh, uh, lead-acid batteries, they can handle voltage spikes up to like 19 volts or 20 volts, something like that. So they're much safer on that aspect, but still you're carrying a hunk of lead with you. And they, the benefit of lead-acid is also its disadvantage. So yes, it will never turn off. So you don't ever have to worry about, you know, the FETs disconnecting, causing a, you know, all of that induction in the alternator to break down to high voltage and burn out the windings. Great. That's a problem you don't have to deal with with lead acid. But on my sail home, and for your viewers who don't know my story, I recently sailed, mm, um, it worked out to 1400 kilometers, uh, 560, no, 760 nautical miles. Wow. I'm brain farting right now. 1400 kilometers in, in real units trip home from uh, Annapolis near Chesapeake Bay to Lake Ontario. And my very first night, my alternator decided it just wasn't going to work. There you go. So the I was running everything, uh, 750 nautical miles. Thank you. Uh, he's very kindly just texted me the answer to my question that I should have known offhand. No, no, it's because it's because we, I've got viewers all over the world. So I always make fun of the Americans because I always have to translate like kilometers to miles. For, miles and stuff, yeah. And, and especially imperial measurements. And I always joke that um, I have to convert to from metric to imperial for everyone in, you know, Myanmar, Liberia and the United States. <laughs> so um, I, I, I can go a whole... Units and measurements is a constant struggle on my YouTube channel because being Canadian, I'm so close to America, I tend to flip back and forth between imperial and um, metric measurements and it, it drives my poor little brain mad. But getting back to the story. So the very first night I leave Chesapeake Bay, I cut through the CND channel, run down Delaware Bay and I make it into Cape May, the South Atlantic Ocean. Pull in to my first fuel stop, turn off the boat and they ask me, hey, can you move down the dock. We've got a big boat coming in. We need to free up some space. Sure. No problem. Click, click, click. Engine won't start. Dead as a doornail. Go to check the starter battery. Four volts. I had, my alternator hadn't been running. So my blowers, my tachometer, the compass light, all of the stuff that normally runs off the starter battery had been running all night and drained the battery down to four volts. So yeah, a lead acid never disconnects, and in some circumstances, that's a benefit. But had I been running off of lithium iron phosphate, where I had a proper BMS, battery management system, it would have cut off before the battery got so low that it was damaged. So it's a kind of one hand gives, the other hand takes. For sure. And let's actually fold this right into the whole sailboat story, because I feel like your channel has a wealth of technical knowledge, and I really appreciate the fact that you're sort of like showing off your builds and what you're learning and stuff like that, that, that stuff is fantastic. But I have to say that the, the latest, the saga about getting the sailboat from, you know, purchase to retrofit, uh, you know, halfway retrofit, I guess at this point, um, to the sail home, uh, and the story that, that comes with it, that is something that is extra special. So, can you just give us maybe the the broad view, the sort of like 10,000 foot view of, of the story, like, um, you know, buying the sailboat and, you know, the time crunch and stuff like that? Because I am infatuated with that story. I'm following every video as it comes out. Um, first of all, thank you. That makes me really happy. The So I don't know how far back you want to go. So I'll go back to this part of the story. 
I'm from New Brunswick, Canada. I grew up on the water. I used to listen to all the weather forecasts and they would talk about high tide, low tide and the, the winds offshore. I lived around the water and around boats. And I love the water. I mean, Digital Mermaid, you know, kind of giving away the lead there. But I never really had much of a thing for boats. I thought. I went to visit a friend of mine in Ireland, in um, Kinsale, south of Cork, and I was just going to go visit him for the weekend. And he happened to live on a sailboat, and we went sailing. Now, up to this point, I had never been on a sailboat. I'd only ever been on power boats. So we get on, and we're heading out Kinsale Harbor, and I'm like, all right, it's pretty cool, you know, in the water in Ireland. It's pretty badass. But there was this moment where he turned into the wind, hoisted the sails, the sails filled up, he killed the engine, and we leaned over, and all I heard was the water and the waves. And I know this sounds cheese as hell, but I had an epiphany moment. I'm like, oh, it wasn't the boats I didn't like. It was the noise of the engine I didn't like. So literally later that day, we were sitting around and we'd gotten back to, to the dock and we were over at one of his friend's boats and we we're having a couple of you know adult beverages. And this person had a Tradewinds 35. She invited me on. I talked about, I said, you're like, ah, I never thought about sailing before, but I says, you know, I think I might like a sailboat. And she was like, oh, well, come on down. And she was showing me around and I'm looking around and I'm like, I had this moment where I'm like, um, wait, is this a PG 13 G or whatever? Can I, can I, can I use real language or should I be careful? You can use regular language. Okay, do, you do whatever you like. I sat there and I looked at her and I says, Jesus, fuck, I think I'm going to buy a sailboat. I had never before that morning ever enter even entertained the idea of buying a sailboat. It was not something I thought was even on my mind. And by the end of the day, it was like, yep, I'm going to buy a sailboat. I'm going to live on a sailboat. Like complete freaking 180 on my life. So from that trip, and I knew it was going to be electric from day one. I knew I didn't like the sound of the diesel. So from day one, I knew I was going to buy a sailboat and I was going to electrify it. So I got home and I was just obsessed with this idea of I'm going to buy a sailboat. Now, like most people who first enters this whole realm of, I want to buy a sailboat and I want to cross oceans. You think you want what they call in, in the sailing community, a true blue water, heavy displacement, catch rig, which means there's two mast, full keel. These things that make like a classic ocean crossing sailboat. And I really fetched eyes on a West Sail 43. This boat was like 28,000 pounds. It was twin masted. It was inch of solid fiberglass on the hull. One of the reviews I read said that it's built like a tank. Unfortunately, it sails like one too. And I thought to myself, right, that's what I need. I need something that's going to keep my idiot ass alive when I'm out on the water as a novice sailor and screw up. And so I set about trying to buy a West Sail 43. And then this little thing happened um, and the whole world shut down for about three years. And I don't want to minimize how incredibly difficult that period of time was. But for me personally, it was kind of a blessing because it forced me to take the time to learn a lot more about sailboats and sailing in general. And by the time that public health issue was over, the boat I decided I wanted to buy was the complete polar opposite. I was going to buy a performance cruiser, lightweight, nimble, easy to push, delicate little flower. God help me if I screw up and hit something because I'm going down. But the reason I made that change is because as 
probably most of your listeners, viewers know, the energy density, even in lithium batteries, compared to the energy density of something like diesel, is staggering. Now, yes, internal combustion engines themselves are horribly inefficient. So though the energy density of diesel is some big number I don't remember off the top of my head, larger than batteries, a battery is far more efficient in its conversion of that electrical stored energy into propulsion. So the difference is not as bad as it seems on the surface when you look at the energy density of a battery versus diesel. But still, there's a lot more energy that you can use for motion in a diesel than you can use for a battery. So knowing that I wanted to go to really remote places, places basically wherever the people aren't, um, you know, Ariel's song, I want to be where the people are. Yeah, I want to be where the people aren't. So I knew that I had to really focus my design around maximum range. And so I ended up starting to look at this weird balance of priorities in sailing where I wanted something that was big enough that I could live on it without hating myself, small enough that I could sail it by myself, light enough that I could push it a reasonable different distance with the batteries I was going to put onto it and something that I could keep relatively warm in cold climates. And through this three-year health crisis, I came to find or to decide that um, the brand is CNC Yachts. The make is a Landfall 38. So Landfall was their attempt at what they call a performance cruiser or racer cruiser variant of a boat. Canadian company, though my boat was built in Florida, in America. I point is, as I decided before the health crisis ended, I wanted this very specific boat. I think 180 were ever built. Someone can fact check me on that number. It wasn't a huge number, but it wasn't a small number. But they weren't made much past the 80s. So there wasn't a whole lot of them for sale. So I'm like, okay, I need to be willing to go pretty much anywhere on the eastern seaboard to find this boat. I found mine in Chesapeake Bay, um, outside of Annapolis, a little place called Kent Islands. Now, because I knew I was going to be doing a lot of work with the electrification, I specifically was looking for a boat that had a really dry core. Um, pause, I need to provide context. One of the reasons why these boats were such good performers um, and were such fast boats is because they were one of the first boats to use a cord hull and a cord deck. What that means is you would have a mold where you'd lay out fiberglass, then they would put a balsa core down, and then they'd do another layer of fiberglass. It's kind of like a sailboat hull version of an I-beam. The strength comes from the, the, the two flat plates that are held together by that, by that narrow thin plate. In this case, though, instead of having a narrow thin plate of metal like you do in an I-beam, you have a core of balsa wood. And the problem with these older boats is that if any water gets in, the core starts to rot. And that's what kills most of these older boats is the core rots. And the cost to replace or to repair it exceeds the value of the boat and the boat gets scrapped. So I found this boat that had a really good core, but I knew it hadn't been used for a while. The seller told me that it hadn't been sailed in three years before I bought it. I found out after I bought it, it was closer to 15 years. So I bought this boat 1,400 kilometers away from by water from my home, and it hadn't been used in 15 years. Now, you talk about changing your transmission. Clearly, you're very mechanically inclined. What's the worst thing you can do to an engine or to any mechanical system? Oh, uh, let it get moisture, I guess. Or not use it. Or not use it. Yeah. Well, I guess that's that's one in the same because exactly. the lubrication happens during use. 
Exactly. So I bought this boat and originally I was thinking to myself, I'll just put it on a truck and bring it home. But that's not very DIY of me now, is it? So I decided, nope, nope, nope. I'm going to fix her up and sail her home. This boat had literally sat for the better part of 15 years. Every single thing on this thing that was a hose or a belt was perished. And so I had to fix it up to sail at home. I have never done diesel engine work in my life. I've done basic, basic maintenance of my gas cars in the past, but I had no clue what I was doing. So I quickly realized that I was not going to be able to bring the boat home in a short order. So I decided to keep the boat down in its slip where I bought it for another year and give myself that year to take sailing lessons because it's probably worth mentioning at this point, I had never sailed a boat before in my life. I'd been sailing with my friend the one time, but I had no clue how to sail. I didn't know anything about boats. I didn't know anything about diesel. And I was still in the process of learning the basics of electrics. Um, Mama didn't raise me to be the brightest bulb in the batch. Let's just say that. But at least I have ambition. Foolishly so. So I spent the year trying to get the boat ready to bring home. I, I, I didn't, it's good that I didn't know what I didn't know because I wouldn't have done this. And it's been a lot of fun, even when all hell broke loose. So I'm kind of glad I did it, but I wouldn't have done it if I had known how, how big of a job I was taking on. So over the course of a year, I was taking my sailing lessons. I was fixing up the boat. The wires were broken from corrosion. All of the hoses had to be replaced. The belts had to be replaced. The, the impeller had to be replaced. I had to drain the diesel tank, clean it because it had been sitting for 15 years. And apparently there's a type of bug that can grow in diesel. It's called diesel bug. Very original name there, I know. Um, so I had to clean out the diesel tanks. I had to learn about polishing diesel. I had to do all of this stuff. And I had to do it all before my time at my marina ran out because it was very expensive the marina i was at so i finished that in the middle of may this year and then set sail and sailed up the chesapeake across the cnd canal down delaware bay up through the atlantic ocean heading from jersey down to up to new york city up the hudson bay and then from albany to niagara river i went through the erie canal system Erie Canal, Welling Canal to St. Catharines, where my boat is. Um, it was, I'm sorry, I've talked a whole lot. I should stop for, I should stop here and let you ask. No, it, it's, it's fine. You can rest your voice a little bit though, but th this is where we're at though, because you're, I mean, you're home right now, but mm -hmm. on YouTube, you're not home yet. No. Uh, on YouTube, I believe the last episode I remember seeing you were getting the Renogy installed. Yeah. Um, basically, for those of you, I know we skipped a lot of things, but you really have to go check her channel out, please. <laughs> um, but basically, she installed uh, two giant um, lithium iron phosphate um, banks of batteries. And to charge the lead acid starting battery, she installed a DC to DC charger because you can charge from... I, I think the idea was because you can change charge from... The lifepo bank to the um, lead acid is that why? Uh, sort of, but flip it around. Oh, okay, the, okay, the other way. What oh, I'm yeah, saying, yeah, alternator to lead acid, then lead acid to lifepo. Gotcha. Exactly, that was what I was trying to do. So the I don't have solar on this boat yet. I will, of course, but for the trip home, I only had the alternator, and I was trying to figure out how to get the alternator to charge the house bank. And everything I've done so far that I've that's for the long-term project, I bought Victron 
for the viewers who don't know, Victron is basically the gold standard when it comes to the marine world. A friend of mine, when I was first looking to buy my Quattro, who's a sailboater, he was trying, like I was going back and forth because I was looking at the sticker price of this inverter charger and I'm like, fuck, pardon my language. I don't know if I, like, this is a lot of money. It was like $4,000 I think I paid for just the inverter charger. And he says, look, it's going to cost you, but it's going to outlast you. And I'm like, you know, considering the kind of places I want to go, pay the price, get something that's going to last. And this is literally going to be my like my life on the line. But for the trip home, I only plan to use the DC-DC converter once for that one trip home. And then I was ripping the engine out and I wouldn't need the alternator to charge it anymore. So I didn't want to buy a Victron expensive DC-DC charger. So I went with Renogy, which is a decent brand. Don't get me wrong. But yes, the last video had me setting up the Renogy DC-DC charger to charge the house bank off of the alternator. And I kind of want to set everyone's expectations so, so that they go check out your channel too. Um, what Maddie is saying about uh, her not having the knowledge and her boat being sat for 15 years and everything needs to be changed... The way she makes her videos, and uh, you can block your ears if you don't like positive feedback. <laughs> um, the way she makes her videos is it's a it's a journey. We're going on the ride with her. So um, she sets up the cameras. And in fact, that actually uh, turns out hilarious as well. Sometimes the cameras uh, stop recording and, you know, you just get elated screams from the other room, which is fine. <laughs> but like you see her struggle to to pull hoses off, you see her struggle to figure out how the cooling system is not pumping any water. Uh, and I mean, I don't want to spoil too much because I actually really do want you guys to go check out the, the channel because I'm sure you'll get hooked uh, once you get started. But it's um, I appreciate uh, that every little thing is a victory because you had to work for it. And, uh, you know, sitting on my ass here at home, I feel like I've I've won something too when you finally you know get 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 coolant to come out for the first time and and stuff like that. So I really appreciate your channel and I, I think it would be impossible to sit here for only an hour and describe what I like about it. It's just you, you have to see it. So that's that's what I have to say about it. I uh, if, if the camera was on, you'd see that I'm blushing, and it's not just from the scotch. I. <sighs> I constantly have to pinch myself like I, my channel by YouTube standards is absolutely tiny, but by the standards of what I thought it might ever become, it is so much larger than I ever expected. And it just tickles me absolutely pink that people are enjoying my journey. I, to provide a little bit of context, perhaps. When I was thinking about starting the channel, actually, my friend Andrew was the one who kept pushing me to start the YouTube channel. And I was like, but why? There's so many fantastic channels by people who are much more talented videographers than me. What could I possibly do that wouldn't be something that's been done 20 times before? And I consciously set out to start the channel to be, okay, every channel I've seen has been, I'm going to show you how to do X. What I hadn't seen was, can regular person do X? And so i made the point to run the channel to show everything. And I know that for a lot of people that can be a little bit tedious because I do show arguably too much, though I think that's 
kind of what some people like about it. But I want to show all the highs and lows. I want to show the wins and the losses. I wanted, my goal has always been to show people, if you want to take on a big project like I have, don't be put off by when things go badly. And I've had some tremendous failures and fuck ups. And they were kicks in the pants, and kicks in the gut. And okay, you know what, you walk away for a couple of days, you feel your feels, and then you shake it off and you get back into it. That it really blows me away that so many people watch the channel. But if I was to entertain arrogance for a moment, I would say that it's because I show the failures, not just the victories. Well, it's it's YouTube, right? The important component is not videography. It's you, right? It's your story. Oh, My videography is garbage. <laughs> it's actually you do pretty well. You make that boat look a lot bigger than I'm sure it is. <laughs> That's the fisheye lens. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I looked I have the, the floor plan up here as you um, as you were talking about the boat. I just wanted to get some context. And uh, yeah, it's it's not very big, folks. It's it uh, it's pretty small indeed. And you even have some some spaces that you had to work in where you have to leave the cabin to access through some other hatches. I think you call them the lazarettes. I'm not a lazarette. Yeah. There lazarette in the, in the quarter berth are the two engine accesses. Before I bought this boat, one of the few criticisms I saw of it was its engine access. And I thought to myself foolishly at the time, well, that's okay. I'm not going to work on the engine. I don't care. Ha ha. Huh? Oops. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, yeah, there's something I've come to learn. Um, boat yoga, which is the term for the fact that you have to contort yourself into a pretzel to get at most of the things on a boat. For a little bit of background, if you look at a modern 38-foot boat, um, I think I talk about this in one of the videos. My slipmate at my old marina had a 38-foot modern um, Beneteau Oceanus 38, I think it was. And most modern boats, if you look at their design, they start at a point and they sweep back to the widest point called the beam. And from there, modern boats tend to carry their beam back towards the aft, towards the transom, the back of the boat. So by the time you get to the very back of the boat, it's only a little bit more narrow than the widest part of the boat. And because of that, you have really big engine bays. You have usually twin aft cabins or an aft cabin in a really big work locker, lazarette type setup. You have lots of space at the back of the boat. The downside to that is that your resistance as you push through the water is greater. And the way you can always tell this is if you look at a boat, any kind of a boat traveling through the water, look at the size of the wake that it leaves behind you. In order to move the water, you have to impart energy. So the the wake left after a boat is a sign of the boat's hull's inefficiency so if you look at a modern sailboat the, it has more of a wake than modern boats but that's because they thought you know what people want to be able to have guests on their boat they want to be able to have lots of space in the cockpit so they can host people and have sundowners and whatnot we're going to sacrifice slipperiness through the water to give more hosting space more sleeping space more cabin space my boat is what they call an IOR hull. It's got something called a canoe stern. That might sound fancy at first, but you think about a canoe, it pinches to a point at the back. My boat pinches, so it, it reaches its beam, the widest part, and then it starts to sweep back, and it goes back to a point, like the bow, before it comes out of the water. I have what's called a transom, which is the flat part of the back of the boat, but that's above the water. Below the waterline, um, it's pinched. So all of that space that you see at the back of a modern 38-foot boat, I don't have any of it. 
So the quarter berth pinches in quite close. If you ever see the videos where I'm climbing in that little berth and I've got the hatch open and I'm trying to access that side of the engine, it's very narrow back there because the hull is pinched in so much. Climbing in through the lazarette, which is sort of like the storage hatch and the more direct engine access, it's a really steep slope. And you know, I'm always sliding down into the engine when I'm sitting in there. It's not a pleasant place to be. But what it does is it means that the water resistance at the back of my boat is virtually non-existent. If you look at the wake that I leave when I'm traveling through the water compared to a modern sailboat, it's virtually nothing. But that is a conscious trade-off I had to make. In sailing, a lot of people, when they first get into sailing, they're like, what's the best boat to do X? And there's no answer because every single thing in a sailboat is a trade-off. My boat, compared to most modern 38s, is far smaller inside than you would expect. So if any of your listeners have been on a modern 38 foot and they've got this idea of how much space they have, cut it in half. That's what you have in my boat. But that was one of the reasons I actually liked it is because I was mentioning I want to go into the Arctic and the Antarctic. Having a smaller cabin means that I have less volume of air to keep warm. So my heating fuel will last longer. It'll go further. The other side is because I actually want to cross oceans, having a small cabin down below means that if I'm in relatively rough waters and I'm being pitched around, I don't have far to fall. If I lose my footing and fall, I've got pretty little distance before I hit something. So I might get a bruise, but I'm probably not going to be really hurt. I'm not going to truly fall. But to get that, I had to give up cabin space. Hey, that's, I mean, that's fair enough. And like being an automotive guy, everything is a trade-off. Fair right? enough. Exactly. I, I get students come in and they tell me, well, you know, I'm going to replace my, my car's intake system with an intake system that takes in a lot more air. And I say, okay, good, that you'll probably be fine, you know, peak peak horsepower will probably increase, but the area underneath the horsepower curve will decrease and your drivability is going to slightly decrease, right? Everything, everything is a trade-off. Exactly. Absolutely everything is. Exactly. Look, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I do have a question that I throw to every guest mm -hmm. and uh, I'd like to throw it to you if that's all right. Absolutely. Okay. So... In this fictitious scenario, you get uh, unlimited funding. Just think, you know, government grant or Bezos gives you a blank check. But you have to start the business of your dreams. It doesn't have to be profitable because you're funded, but it does have to provide a service or a product. What kind of business do you start? Hmm. Okay. One of the things that, that irks me the most about the modern sailing world is how relatively closed everything is. And this is kind of speaking back to my original complaint about the electric motors I was trying to choose. One of the things that was keeping me away from choosing one motor over another is the fact that they came from companies who kept their source relatively locked down. Similarly, if you, I mean, with NMEA 2000, it's not quite entirely this. So anybody who's from the marine world might be like, well, that's not entirely true. But Generally speaking, once you buy into one company's ecosystem, you're kind of tied into their ecosystem for the rest of everything else you buy. So if you're going to go into Raymarine or Simrad or um, whoever company, you kind of have to use their stuff across the board to make sure it all plays nicely with each other. And it's not really open to the average person. I come very much from the open source community, from the DIY ethos, from the makerspace world. I love the idea of 
things being hackable in the MIT definition of the word. So if I had unlimited resources, I really truly believe that electric sailboats is the future. I mean, eventually I think all boats will be electric, but sailboats are far more accessible at this point in time. I would love to develop an entire suite of fully open source hardware and software sensors and tools and equipment for the sailing community. One where if somebody didn't want to spend a whole lot of time paying the time price to learn, they could just go to a company and say, I want this, and they could get it. So the company's primary product would be a whole suite of products, software and hardware that it would allow you to take a sailboat and fully electrify it, have all the modern conveniences, and just go sailing and don't worry about it. But leave everything open so that the other extreme, someone who wanted to assemble everything themselves could equally do so. So I would want to have a full product suite that allowed for everything you could imagine, Windexes, depth sounders, side scanners, or, um, side, uh, single sideband scanners, um, not meters, multifunction displays, I mean, Christ, even things like your bilge pumps and whatnot, put all of this stuff with open firmware, open hardware, open communication standards, come up with something that was backwards compatible with NMEA 2000, but fully open where nobody had to pay to get access to, nobody had to sign an NDA to be able to get access to the communication protocols for it, and try to shake the vendor lock-in out of the sailing world. You're a woman after my own heart, because if I had unlimited resources, I'd probably end up doing that in the automotive world. So, <laughs> It's a sign of a maker. A maker, but, nothing pisses off a maker more than finding out that they can't do something because of some stupid lockout or license. For sure. Uh, like modularity is, is, is the, I think is the key. Yeah, for sure. Because, uh, you know, I don't need options A, B, and C, but I do definitely want uh, D and E and F. And so why do I have to buy A, B, and C, D, E, F, right? I don't, I don't want all that. Or what do I, why do I have to sign an NDA in order to be able to speak to A, B, C, D, E, or F, depending on which ones I want? Yeah, that is a pain in the butt. Yeah, so thousands that way. I think I, I I honestly I honestly think you're you're in the right place to uh, talk open source because uh, I've had a whole bunch of open source advocates uh, on here, and um, like uh, I had a whole suite of uh, of makers a few months ago that went to the open source hardware convention. I mean, I had uh, Thea Flowers who open sources all of her synth stuff. Um, I had um, people who worked for Adafruit, uh, who Adafruit is uh, big on open source stuff. So mm -hmm. you're you're in the right place when you're talking <laughs> about open source. Awesome. Um, before we wrap this up, I, I do want to emphasize that people should go check out your channel because we only just scratched the surface. But is there um, anything that you would like to to specifically share with uh, the listeners? So you you probably have not a lot of overlap with uh, my subscribers and your subscribers for the moment. Is there anything you'd, you'd like to talk about? <sighs> if I was to distill down the fundamental 
goal of my channel. And extension of that answer of this question, it is this. Don't be afraid of failure. I've had a lot of people ask me, and it blows my mind that they care about my opinion, but I've had a lot of people ask me, like, why did you do this? Aren't you scared? And my answer to them is, yeah, I'm fucking terrified. But I'm not afraid of failing. And I think one of the biggest things that keeps people away from taking on big projects is the fear of failure. I almost every time I screw up and I show my screw up on YouTube, I get comments about how, you know, I'm an idiot or I, I can't succeed or, 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 and it's not just the YouTube channel. I got this multiple times prior in my life as well. Nobody likes to be criticized. It hurts. It, it kind of sucks because everyone, especially people who are capable, generally tend to be filled with self-doubt. So when you're putting a lot of effort into something you really care about and you screw up, all of those dark thoughts you have about, oh, I'm not smart enough to do this, I'm not good enough to do this, they come out in force. And then when somebody else comes out and says, see, yeah, you're, you're just you're not going to do this. I mean, I had one comment saying, like, I don't think you've got what it takes to bring your boat home. And this is before I left to go home. And part of me was like, fuck, I think he's right. Um, do it anyway. And don't worry with the fact that, yeah, you're, you know what, you're going to screw up. You're going to fail. You're going to waste money here and there. You could have done it. it. Things would have been better if you had paid somebody else to do it. But that's completely missing the point. The joy of what we do, and I say we as anybody who's into any form of DIY, the joy the value comes from those moments where you get things working. You talked about when I finally got the water coming out of the back of my heat exchanger. Holy shit, did I hit a low point. I was like, I can't even get the cooling working. How do I think I'm going to be able to get the boat home? And I won't lie, there was times where I kind of entertained the idea of giving up. And having the YouTube channel was oddly enough one of the things that kept me going because I'm like, shit, I can't let anyone see me fail. But when you finally get it working, holy shit, that high makes up for all of the lows. So whatever somebody listening to this might be thinking about doing, how big or how small of the project might be, go for it. And know you will fail and that's fine. Have your moment, shake it off, and then get back to it. Because when you finally get shit working, oh, is it worth it? Is it worth every bit of it? I, I repeat this to my students all the time is that I have had more screw ups than you have had attempts. And that is why I am teaching and you are learning. Mm -hmm. There's, there is no such thing as doing without messing up. You can't make, you can't do anything and have it be perfect. So yeah, Going definitely. To fuck do up it. And don't listen to the naysayers. Exactly. And I think, on that bombshell, I think that's a great place to end. Um, can you please let everyone know where they can find you? Uh, socials, YouTube channel, stuff like that? So in typical nerd fashion, I'm not very good at the whole socials thing. My only real site at this point is my YouTube channel, The Digital Mermaid, um, at The Digital Mermaid. Um, beyond that, I um, that's, I mean, I, I have a Patreon and stuff like that, but I only want people to support if they are getting something from it and it doesn't cause them any hassle to do so. I have some amazing patrons and, oh, wow. Okay, that sounded like a sale and I really don't feel comfortable doing that. Uh, YouTube, just YouTube. 
that's awesome. If you come and you watch, I am happy as heck. Post in the comments. Let me know what you're working on. One of my favorite, favorite things that has come from YouTube is hearing about other people and the projects that they've got going on. Um, if anybody wants to find me on YouTube and watches a video and relates to any of them in any way, tell me about your project. I, Everything I've been doing, it's about trying to encourage other people because I understand the joy of making. And I do this because other people encouraged me. So for me, there's no higher honor than knowing that I've helped encourage other people. So tell me about what you're doing. That just it, it tickles me pink. And um, you're maybe uncomfortable saying it, but uh, I'll say it. If you end your month with a couple extra dollars in your pocket, um, I can think of no better place than uh, Maddie's Patreon. So be a part of the solution because uh, she wants to greenify her boat. And I mean, hey, you can maybe claim it as a tax deduction, you know, being I, more green. <laughs> I will say this, and I've said this to the people who have already supported me. Whatever I get goes into the boat. Whatever I get from Patreon, from YouTube, I treat it as bonus points for the boat build. Um, I'm going to be putting in a whole new separate servo and shunt and screen for the for, to keep the 48 and the 12 volt system separate, something I never thought I was going to do. And I can only do it because people have helped me. If anybody is going to support the channel, I'm going to do my very best to turn it into content to hopefully make people happy. And personally, I just like the story. So Thank you. Uh, if you I, want I, the story to get me, I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, it's it's uh, honestly, I I appreciate it because it is entertainment uh, these days when I have less time. Uh, I need something more entertaining and your channel is information and entertainment. So I'm, I appreciate that. I am touched and honored. Thank you. That we're nerds. The biggest thing about nerds, nerds are kids who never grew up. And what do kids like to do most but to share their toys? Pretty much. And so uh, I hope you guys will check out her YouTube channel linked in the show notes or the description wherever you are watching or listening. I'll also link her Patreon, much to her dismay, uh, <laughs> and any other links that we find important we're going to put down there. And I hope you guys will go check her out uh, and at least leave a comment, you know, let her know that you listen to the podcast. And uh, if I can make a quick recommendation, if you are interested in the boat saga, um, Maddie has a whole bunch of videos. But if you just want to dip your toes and see what I'm talking about, um, episode 53, which is preparing for the trip home, part one, batteries and diesel, is a great place to, to, to sort of uh, join the new saga of bringing the boat home, getting the boat ready. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll, in no time, you'll get to the point where you'll be, you know, waiting for every next episode like I am. Thank you very kindly. Uh, and honestly, to your listeners, I know we sort of did the Patreon plug there, but just watching the videos, liking, commenting, and whatnot, I resisted for the longest time saying, you know, please like and subscribe, the usual YouTube thing. But it really does feed the algorithm. If somebody watches and likes and subscribes, it's, it's it's really a huge help and so much appreciated. It absolutely is. And so, yeah, I hope you guys will go check it out and um, I'll catch you guys on the next podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Maddie. Thank you for having me. I, I'm honored. <laughs>